Blog Talk Radio. This is Patty Holstrand, and this is KWAD Radio. We're on live today. It's Wednesday. May 1st, with May Day for lots of people who remember May Day. I had to be reminded. <laughs> and of course I was reminded by none other than Jack McDevitt, who is on the line with us right now. How you doing, Patty? <laughs> I'm doing good. <laughs> well, it's very nice to be with you. Well, it's uh, you're going to be here in a week, so that's going to be cool. Yeah, looking forward to it. <laughs> I just spent last week at Niagara Falls. This is, you were uh, turning into a, into a pretty nice, uh, pretty nice period. Wow! So you say that you just, you just, you you came from Niagara Falls. You're going there right now, or what? No, I just, I just spent this past weekend up there at EerieCon. Oh, yeah. Being a science fiction writer is just not a bad deal. It's great life. <laughs> you get around, huh? Uh, pretty much, yes. You were here, and uh, where else have you been this year? Um, actually, that's those are the first places I've been this year, but I'll be at, at four or five other places before I'm done. Awesome. Right, you know, uh, I I got some author friends who like to get around the con, you know, the convention circuit as well, and uh, you know, they they sell some books and and they meet new people and they like doing that. So that's you know, that's the way to go. Yeah, well, science fiction conventions are a lot of fun. You know, no matter no matter where they are, and I've been the, I've been the cons in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and cons in Boston. Miami, and uh, you all, it always feels as if the same people show up. It's the same kind of people. <laughs> you know, they uh, they know about the kids who look in the Martian Canal and see the Martians. You know, it's uh, it's really nice, and they're 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 good people. They're a pleasure to they're a pleasure to work with. Yeah, we are an eclectic bunch, aren't we? Uh, yes, like... ma'am. I, th- I think so. <laughs> and uh, I and I often say that about. Uh, convention goers and fans in general that they they are well read lot. They like well, sure. reading a lot sure. of different things. I, I periodically I get invited to address a group of people who are not uh, they're not it's not a science fiction crowd. Uh, it's like you know a, a library event or something, and uh, those tend to be really strange. I, I remember showing up at one. And the woman that I checked in with uh, leaned into the next office and told somebody, uh, Harry, the Buck Rogers guy is here. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, uh, I've, I've had a number of times where I'll go to one of these things, and when I'm finished, uh, you know, I usually speak for maybe 15, 20 minutes, and when I'm finished, uh, one of these, somebody will come up and say, you know, I don't read this stuff myself. Uh, but my, my nephew Charlie does, and he always says it in a tone that suggests that Charlie's got other problems as well. <laughs> and I, I honestly feel sorry for these people. You know, it's uh, they've never really gotten above the rooftops. Yeah, and, you know, my dad's the same way. 
uh, you know, whenever I say anything about something, he says, well, you know, what do you know? You don't watch the news. You're in their science fiction world. I, <laughs> hey, you know, I must rather be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a better and, world. And, you know, he's, he has a misconception that we're not informed. And that's just not the, that's not the case at all. Well, I'll tell you, you know, um, I, 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 I live in southeast Georgia. we got a lot of people here who, for example, will deny global warming, despite the fact that every climatologist you run into who's not working for an oil company will tell you, A, yes, it's happening, and, B, we're contributing to it. You know, and it's, it's uh, yet these these people, you know, they, they, they get the opinion that their opinions um if, if they clash with the facts and their opinions win, you know I'm, I'm not sure what it is. But I, you don't, I don't see that with science fiction people. They, they're willing to admit they're wrong. For example, you know if they get off on on something that's you know kind of is, is not no longer so, is, is not is known to be no longer so, they're willing to admit it. They don't they don't have a problem with being wrong about it. Uh, you know a, a facts. You know God knows I've been wrong about a lot of things. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I've had some people who get really uh, tense about, um, you know, the tree huggers that, that they want to get really tense because we say something about, well, you know, we should be, uh, we should be, you're still attempting to get up in space, you know, and they get they get all weird on it, and, and it was like, whoa, you know, calm down, it's it's not <laughs> it's not the end of the world, and I start laughing, <laughs> so. We just have a better sense of humor, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would think so. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure where to go with that. I'm not, I don't <laughs> want to say that the country as a whole doesn't have a good sense of humor, but you're right. You're right about that, yes. Yeah, because I, I think most uh, most of them, I mean, again, they do like a really good, uh, you know, they, they want to talk to you because they know that you're informed and you can you can have hold a really good conversation and that's what they like. Um, you know, if you're if you're disagreeing with them, you have a reason and you apply you know and, and can apply it very well to them and they're they're okay with that usually. Um, yeah. Yeah. And isn't that what science fiction is all about? You know, exploring new ideas. <laughs> well, sure. If you're if you're talking about science, that's the whole point of it. Is that uh, yeah? What do we know now that we didn't know last week? Or or sometimes it's yeah. what did we know last week that we're now discovering is probably very sh- on very shaky ground. Yeah, and that can happen. I you know that, that brings me up to something. I know this is kind of getting off on a tangent, but you know we started on tangent, so let's just keep going with it. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do, do you do you think that we um, have come out with less ideas now than we used to, like you know back in uh, I don't know fifties and sixties? You know that that subject came up at uh, at EerieCon, matter of fact, and I have to admit I'm not sure anymore. It's you know there there, there there's just so many great ideas. That you come up with for stories, and, and I'm not sure that that's why you don't run through them all. Uh, you know, you read something. You know, I, I know my fav- my all-time favorite story is Arthur Clarke's The Star. I think that's just out of this world. And uh, you know, it's one of those. I really wish I'd thought of it before. Well, I couldn't have thought of it before he did because it was written long before I started writing. But 
there are there are a limited number of ideas like that that you can go with. Mm. And um, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure. We're not kind of. I, I'll tell you, there's there's a story that appeared in the Atlantic magazine about oh, I guess about two or three years ago, and I I don't know that I didn't know the title of the, I don't remember the title of the story. Don't remember who wrote it. But it was an absolutely great story. I nominated for nominated it for the Nebula. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the Atlantic doesn't normally publish anything that you could nominate for a major award. <laughs> uh, but this thing was about uh, what really happened at Lourdes. And it turns out, you know, the, uh, the 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 three kids, of course, who they they see the Blessed Mother. Two of them died young, and the third one became a nun and was pretty much shut away from everybody else for a long period of time. The story dealt with a reporter who tried to get, get to the, uh, the, the surviving woman and find out what really happened, what, he, what she really saw. And the, the conclusion of the story was that it wasn't Mary who showed up at Lourdes. It was Athena. Huh. Oh, well, that would change, that'd totally change it, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, it sure would, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just—it's really a punch at the end of the story. It's magnificent. Yeah. Uh, but how many? You know, after what? How many of those things can you run into? Yeah. How many more? So it, it is can possible. We, can we, yeah, and that's the case. Uh, plausibility and possibility. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's. Yeah. Some people say, well, you know, it, uh, time travel is not plausible. Um, that might be possible, but maybe not plausible. And then, you know, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I, I it happens to be one of my favorite premises, so I sure. Oh hope yeah, that no time travel is fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, you know, I came home from that con with an idea. Uh, I'm, I'm working on an Alex Benedict novel, and Alex lives in the far future. He's eight thousand years from now. Uh-huh. And this novel, it's the first time that he really visits Earth in a major sense. And uh, one of the things I had not thought about doing this before. I guess, there's a mystery set. There's always a mystery in his in his situations. And I, I, on the way on the way back from the car, actually while I was at the con, it occurred to me that what I need uh, is to put a time, the science fiction writer in the uh, what is it the twelfth millennium, okay, eight thousand years from now. They still got science fiction writers. And I thought, boy, if I do that, what is he writing about? Yeah. So I, I spent the plane ride on the way back trying to think up stuff that a science fiction writer might be writing about in eight thousand years. Huh. Well, I'm intrigued already. <laughs> <laughs> because you're, there's your answer. You know, if you can, you know, I often say that you know, if you really want answers to a lot of a lot of issues socially and and scientifically, you should look at science fiction writers. Um, because for some reason they seem to have their finger on the pulse of what's to come. Yeah, I think there's. I think that you know some some of the some of the, the really great ones, especially uh, you know Brad. Yeah, I, Bradbury's got that magnificent story that he wrote in the 1950s called The Pedestrian, in which uh, a guy goes out for a walk, and uh, the, the televisions have just arrived. And I, I remember that era, and uh, you know, as he's walking by these houses, every single house, the lights are all off, and the only thing you see is the glare of the TV. Well, it used to be that the people that lived there, you know, these houses, all sat out on the porch and on the front steps, 
and they talked with one another. That was the way my neighborhood was. It used to be everybody during the summer was out on the front steps, and we all knew one another. Uh, everybody was there. And then when televisions arrived, they all went inside. I haven't seen anybody since. And, uh, you know, and a police car arrives with this guy and says, what are you doing out here? You know, well, I was just going for a walk, officer. And he says, it's, uh, you're supposed to be home, you know, watching television. And, uh, okay, I'll be on my way. I'll go home. And he starts off, and then the police car leaves. And it turns out the police car is automated because the cops are home watching television. Oh, jeez. And, and, and the, yeah. the thing is that he's come very yeah. close to the reality. That's what it is. I live, in a, I live in a beautiful neighborhood now, and I never see kids out in the street in the evening. The streets right now are absolutely you – no, know, it's it's uh, quarter of eight here, twilight, and mm-hmm. it's absolutely quiet. I don't see anybody. Wow. Yeah, and isn't it true? But as I said, that was back uh, – uh, when was that one written? Back in the sixties or fifties? Uh, that would that would have been written around nineteen fifty one, I believe, somewhere in there. Wow! And yeah, right at the beginning of the television about. age. And, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, it's, uh, the writer had knew exactly what was going to happen. You know, with the age of this television. Yes. He, right. <laughs> he knew we would wind up being glued to it, and you know, our lives. Uh, you know, forever changed uh, because of it. I I got friends who are totally unplugged now. I mean, they uh, they gotten out of uh, they they turned off their television, packed it up, packed it away. They don't even watch it. Uh, you know, they they said that you know that's not worth their time. And I you know it's, yeah, that's probably true. But you know, I so think what, 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 what are they tied into now? Computers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they—they this is it. You know, they think, well, hey, I'm, I've unplugged myself, and you should do it too. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, you just swapped. You know, your your plug is all you did. Yeah, you, know, you you went to the computer yeah. instead well, of know, the television. Um, uh, you know, I I, I kind of suspect that technology is is. On the whole, it's pretty good, but for every couple of steps forward, I think we take a step back. I, I think we pay a price for advanced technology. I absolutely agree with you. I think that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, and there's so many so many things that we could name off and, and as proof of that. Uh, well, you yeah. start with atom bombs. <laughs> well, that's a big one. <laughs> yeah, you know, or simply guns. Think how much better off the world would be. If we didn't have, if there were no no explosives, no firearms, if if to kill people was really difficult. Yeah. Uh, that might that um, might get you some angry calls. I I don't know. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, I, know, I I don't think so because again, uh, I think these, my listeners uh, are pretty. Again, they're they're pretty much into the here and now, and they, they understand a lot of things that uh, some other people wouldn't understand, and that this is possibility, and there's uh, there's no reason why we can't talk about things, you know, no reason to get heated conversations about something uh, when you can sit down and talk about it and say, you know, this is not an easy answer. <laughs> Uh, yeah. The answer, the answer to that, what's going on in our in, in our communities with the firearms is not an easy answer. Uh, I don't think that we're going to win either way. Um, if they take them away, then we have whole other issues. You know, does that take care of the problem? I don't think so. 
Yeah, well, you know, they after they had some sort of back in the late 1990s, they had some sort of incident in Australia in which a number of people were murdered, and they banned firearms. They collected all the all the guns from everybody they could. They they did what people are always talking about being scared of. They're coming for my guns, but they collected all the guns. They got rid of the guns. They destroyed them. And uh, the murder rate in Australia, the suicide rate, is, is both down or close, close to zero. Huh. Yeah, I'm sure so, they're using yeah, whatever. that. Whatever. Anyway. They're sure using that as a good example, I'm sure. Uh, but the thing is that, that you're never going to have, I don't know, having uh, zero is pretty impossible when we're so close. I, I think that, uh, okay, I think that it's okay and it worked for Australia because they're not up against another country. Uh, they're isolated. Uh, they're that's isolated island, and so they don't have to worry about gun smuggling across the border. And I, we know about that, and I think and you guys pretty close to Georgia and Florida should know about that. Um, but we know about that a lot in Arizona. Yeah, that's a good point, Patty. <laughs> So, uh, you know, you had to, everyone uses examples, but honestly, they have to look at the situation and say, yes, but if it were here, would that work? So uh, people don't do that sometimes. They they jump and they think, hey, you know, over there it worked. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, well, point taken. So, let's so what down. are you reading these days? <laughs> what am I reading these days? Um. Well, I get a lot of I get a lot of books in in uh, my book box because uh, I also also a managing editor for a newspaper, so uh, I have all the sorts of books that that come into my bin. I try to hand them off to other people because I just don't have the time to read as much as I used to. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, you know, I've been reading your stuff lately. <laughs> okay, I, you're, you're I won't push that. <laughs> You're coming into town, and I wanted, wanted to, you know, I said I've only read one before, and I wanted to know more uh, about you before you got here. So I've been reading uh, some of your books, and, of course, I find them very uh, very fascinating because of the fact that, you know, you're, to me, and this is this is why I wanted you here, because you're a true science fiction writer. Well, thank you. And Thank you. And you're one of the last real true science fiction writers. And that you don't write fantasy, you write science fiction. Yeah, although some people would say faster than light is fantasy. Uh, <laughs> That's true. They can, they can and say it probably that. is, but, you know, I have no other way of you know getting people around. You're stuck in the solar system if you don't have that. I was that's one of the one of the great disappointments in my life when I was 5 6 years old I was a big Buck Rogers fan and they they flew all over the solar system and every every single planet was inhabited there were neptunians and plutonians and all that kind of thing um, yeah. but uh you know after I after I found out a little bit more about the world here it's it becomes kind of uh, it got duller, I guess. So you needed to get outside and go to other stars if you want to find stuff really interesting. One of the things that I'm always fascinated by is the fact that the the, the real great issue.
issue that we all are very, very much interested in is whether there is, in fact, life elsewhere. Uh-huh. Uh, there's, there's nothing that comes even close to that in being what interests us. Uh, you know, I had mentioned earlier that sometimes I, I, I speak at places where they are not science fiction fans, but inevitably they ask me, do I believe, and this is almost always the way it's phrased, do I believe in UFOs? Do I believe in flying saucers? Yeah. Uh, do I think there's uh, there are intelligent beings elsewhere? You know, that kind of thing. And if I say no, which I do periodically, because I like to upset people, they do get annoyed. Uh, <laughs> That's even you know people who are not science fiction people will get annoyed. So that seems as if everybody is connected to the same thing. They do want to believe that there are Martians somewhere. Hmm. Yeah, it is a question that we've I think we've had since the dawn of time here in uh, on Earth. Are we alone, (laughs) or is there other or are there other beings like us? Somewhere in the, you know, vast reaches of space. Yeah. Patty, when I was uh, uh, pretty young, I was still in school, they set up uh, SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial mm-hmm. Intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I thought, boy, you know, we're, we're going to find it. I, had, I really hoped when I was a kid and when I got started reading science fiction that I would live long enough to find out the answer to that question, whether we we're alone or not. And I thought when they started SETI that I would, I would, it was just a matter of time before we heard something somewhere. And I would not have believed that 50 years would go by and we still haven't heard anything. So you're starting to lose hope that you're going, that there is life out there? I, well, I think there has to be life out there. There are too many worlds, uh, you know, there's too many places. Uh, so it's got to be there somewhere. But I'm, I'm kind of losing hope that I'm going to live long enough to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know I don't have another fifty years left. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, it's, I've, we talk about this in the Moon Society group and uh, groups who really space. And you know, it's kind of interesting. I have a son who's just turned nineteen, and a few years ago, I uh, was talking to him about you know getting to the moon and and you know establishing a base in the moon, and he says, "Well, we're not there already." <laughs> I, yeah. first, of all, first of all, I was embarrassed for him. <laughs> yeah, well, we, you know, what's the moon and forgot how to do it. Yeah, uh, it, it's and the reason why I said, well, why would you think we're there? Is that because it's on it's on Disney? The Disney Channel has you know these movies and 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 shows where uh, these kids are up in space, and and so he figured that we should already be there. Yeah, well, I can I can understand his perspective. He said, "Well, weren't we? I, up, you know, we've been up there since the, since the sixties. Why aren't we there?" And, well, I would never have believed that 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 we go the way it did. That we would get to the moon and then forget how to do it. Yeah. Uh, moon base never showed up. Well, you go watch the old movie, that we, and we got twenty oh one is a movie about a spaceship that goes out to Jupiter. Or I think yeah. if you read the novel instead of watch the movie, it's Saturn. Yeah, it's, exactly. a, it's, a, it's an Arthur Clarke novel, uh, and I guess it was, I, I'm not sure when it was written, but uh, I would guess, you know, in the 70s, we probably still believed that we were going to be going to other planets, we'd get to Mars. Um, 
I don't. Yeah. I, you know, they're, they're still talking about a Martian flight. I, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, you know, and <laughs> yeah. it, it turns out it's a lot more difficult than we realize too. There's radiation out there. I'm not sure you can protect people at a ship very easily for a long period of time. Um, there's no gravity, and the result is that their muscles weaken and they fall apart if they're in space for an extended period. Uh, you know, it's just, it's unfortunately, it's not as easy as it looked in 1950. Well, that's probably the point, isn't it? That's, you know, we found out a lot of things we didn't know. And we're no longer ignorant on certain things, and uh, the answers aren't as easy as we thought they would be. <laughs> that's right. And that might might be one reason why you know stories, science fiction stories, are harder to come by because we have been disillusioned in a way. We we know some of the answers out there uh, out there aren't as easy as we thought they'd be. It's all that's true. <laughs> kind of a crapshoot, but you know, uh, I, I'm with a group that believes that, you know, we really need to establish on the moon first in order to jump to Mars. We can't just go from the Earth to Mars. It's just an impossibility to do it that way. Um, yeah, I'm with you on that. I I would not want to see another major effort made and we stagger out there and make it and then decide, boy, I wouldn't want to do that again, and then we just close everything down again. There are a couple of things that we, we really need to do anyway that, that are pretty local. Um, there are too many asteroids. And we need yeah. to set something up so that if one's coming our way, that we can get rid of it. And something else that we need to do Space is to put the power collectors in orbit. Uh, get some stuff up there that will reflect, you know, will collect sunlight, will collect power energy from the mm-hmm. sun, then beam it down to, to, to collectors on the planet. And we will save a lot of the, you know, we'll get away from some of this fossil fuel stuff that we have to have right now and mm-hmm. maybe get ourselves disconnected from the Middle East a little bit. That would be nice. Yeah, uh, the, these are long-term plans, which is which is you know what we need to start doing. We can't possibly, as here they've been planning on these things, but you know they haven't made the first step. Yeah, it's, maybe it's, that's the just, problem with having president the presidential terms that only run four years. Yeah, yeah. With a limit of two. Um, exactly. I don't know. And, and and that's it takes longer than four years to do what we need to do. <laughs> yeah, and we're we're not good at long term planning. Yeah, and that's probably one reason why the Russians make a lot more uh, a trip to the to space than we do. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they spend a whole lot they more money be. on it than we do. So there's uh, there's just so many questions there when it comes to uh, you know what we should be doing. But again, we can't do anything unless we actually make a first step. And that's that's my opinion for whatever it's worth. <laughs> they sit me in the microphone and and put me on a radio station, and I can say anything I want. <laughs> <laughs> not that not that people care, and not that people have, not like what I say. And you know, sometimes it's good to rile people up. Yeah, well, I, gee, I thought that pretty much anything we said, we could roll over Arizona. <laughs> I, 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 I wanted to be a little careful what I said because I didn't want to create any problems. Oh, Arizona, <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, I, I have to talk about that. So to, I think I was talking to you. Uh, you were talking about, oh, well, you guys don't have uh, daylight saving time. And I said, no, we're rebels here in Arizona. <laughs> don't you know that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, we don't change I'm, your time. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been out there for a few years. It's been a while since I've been to Arizona. Um, well, probably think, about six think, or seven years. I just think it's the heat. You know, we're just all brain fried here. And I can say that because, you know, I'm in Arizona. I've been here I've been here since I was nine. So uh, I've been here for a long time. And it just said we... Yeah, we have different problems than other states do, and sometimes other states don't understand that. Um, they only see, you know, that they think we're being uh, unfair to other groups when they they don't live here, so they don't know what the problem is. So, <laughs> yeah, and that's really what it is in a nutshell. We uh, you know, we're trying to take care of our own here, and and uh, that's. A, some things that we consider that we have to do. And, hey, it's better than sitting around and talking about it. So, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. So let's go backwards with you because, you know, I, I know some, obviously a lot of people are sitting there. I can see them in the, in the darkness here listening to you, even though they haven't picked up the phone and called me yet. wonder what we have to say to get them to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, do they have a phone number? No, I just have a guest number. I just I can see that they're sitting there listening. So just to let you guys know, the phone number is 714-242-5145. I know you're there. I can see you. I just don't know where you're coming from. It's 714-242-5145. We're going to go backwards here and talk about, uh, you know, how you got started in writing and, uh, and what you like to read when you what you what did you like to read when you were young? What influenced you? Uh, what actually started me into science fiction was those early serials that I mentioned, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. I was four years old when my father took me to see them, and I loved them. Uh, I just I fell in love with those rocket ships that they had. Although you know it's funny, I, you know I, I I saw them of course years later, uh, sort of a second time, and I. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe that Flash Gordon went to Mars in a rocket ship that had no airlock and no washroom. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that was what the, that was the stuff. I was four years old when I saw them. They got me interested in astronomy, and the astronomy got me interested in science fiction generally. I, I, the, the, the thing that I remember about the uh, Flash Gordon serial was getting annoyed that he's got this great rocket ship. And all he could think of to do with it was pick fights with this guy who looked like my Uncle Harry. Um, you know, if you got a rocket ship like that, go somewhere, Flash, go go, go to the next planet, see what's out there. Um, but, of course, they, you know, they didn't have the special effects to do that kind of thing then. But uh, that, was, that was how I got started in science fiction. Uh, the first piece of writing I did was a, uh, an attempt to do a Batman novel, believe it or not. I was probably about nine. That didn't go anywhere. Uh, what else? I, I, the, the earliest novels I can remember reading were, they used to have books in the five and tens that were based on the radio shows and comic strips So you could, you could and movies. And so you could pick up a book about Red Rider or Captain Midnight or something like that. Uh-huh. And I, I, I read a lot of those. I remember reading something called Big Little Books, which were little kind of fat books. Uh, that were also much the same way. They were based also on, on you know, characters that you knew pretty well. And uh, somewhere when I was, I guess, I guess about 11, 
uh, well, I remember reading Conan, the Conan st- books, too, when I was quite young. And uh, somewhere when I was about 10 or 11, I discovered Bradbury and Heinlein. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that got me started on science fiction, and I just never recovered. I, I, <laughs> I, I could not believe uh, the, the kind of stuff I was reading. You know, I remember reading. I'll, t- I'll tell you, give you an example. Uh, dentists were kind of really scary back in the 1940s. Mm. And uh, you did not want to go to a dentist. The drills were slow and uh, it hurt. Going to a dentist was, always was a painful experience, and I hated it. And I remember going to a dentist one time. I had picked up a copy of some Heinlein stories. It might have been the future history. I'm not sure. But I was I was sitting on the porch in the dentist's office, uh, outside the dentist's office, the porch of the dentist's house. I was sitting on his front porch, and I was reading The Green Hills of Earth. And I got so caught up in that story that I forgot where I was. You know, when they finally came to get me, you know, then I got scared again. But until I completely forgot, I was afraid of it because I, the story is so so brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somewhere back there, also, you know, I, I, I discovered the Martian Chronicles, which I oh, love. Yeah. Um, years later, when I, I was I became an English teacher. Since I was in the Navy for five years, came out of the Navy, became an English teacher, and um, they had. They had stuff that the kids weren't interested in. We were looking at 19th century Victorian novels, and the kids obviously didn't. They didn't want to read this stuff, and they were all. They, anyway, what I what I decided I was going to do was instead of trying these novels that they didn't want to touch, I thought I would try to find something they would like. I, I decided fairly early that my responsibility was to was to find something that would create a passion for reading. Yeah. I, I wasn't up to me to, to introduce them to great figures in, in English literature. I, if I could get them interested in reading, they'd find these other characters, these other people themselves. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I tried a few things. I, I remember trying Sherlock Holmes, the Sherlock Holmes stories, which I loved. But the kids, they, the kids didn't. You know, it's that 19th century. You know, who cares? But anyway, uh, I tried several things. Finally, uh, I, 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 I went with my The Martian Chronicles. And we had some paperback copies of it, and uh, we were selling them in the books in the uh, in the school. Well, the way the way it started was that I I tried staging it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had about three or four kids to help me, and uh, I, I I got a record. I don't remember what uh, what, what was the. Uh, well, anyway, what happens is, of course, the, the rocket ship lands on Mars. Mm-hmm. And those days, they didn't use landers. The rocket ship goes down. They look out the window, and there is a town out there. And it's got picket fences, and there's a church. And they open the door, and somebody in the church is, oh, yeah, somebody in the church, they're playing Beautiful Dreamer. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I had it. I, I brought a record in with me, you know, and I pointed at Harry, and Harry starts the record, you know, what, 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 what do you hear there, Captain? And here comes Beautiful Dreamer in. And the kids just got blown away by this thing. And then, then when we cut, after, after the music stopped, we cut. And I said, okay, you want to read the rest of it? It's called The Third Voyage or Mars is Heaven, and it's in this book. And I showed them the book. They've got them down in the bookstore. Um, and it worked beautifully. The kids, the kids went down. The bookstore sold out. They had to order more copies. Um I, you know, I went with a, a couple of years later with another another group of kids. I went with Heinlein, the Future History, 
and uh, they, they just loved it. There were there were some murmurs from uh, uh, people in the organization who thought that you know it's not really serious literature. We lots of people doing that stuff, but uh, I'll tell you, you know, kids got reading. When I was uh, I, late, years later, I became an English department chairman at a at a school in New Hampshire. And I got uh, I wrote to DC and Marvel. I, what I what happened was I noticed that the uh, um, the dialogue in the comic books uh, they operated at a higher level than the dialogue. A lot of my kids, the, the vocabulary was was better than what a lot of my kids used. Huh. So we I, they, they sent me they sent me boxes of comics free, didn't no charge. Huh. And we used the comics to work with the kids again. There was some some questioning about doing this kind of thing, but our our test scores the the, the, uh, uh, the value the value, I'm trying to remember the term and I don't remember it, but the scores that the kids take that or that qualifies them to go into college. Um, yeah, I, I just I, I can't hear you, Patty. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. SAT. Oh, the, the SAT. SAT. That's it. Yeah, but they went up. They 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 literally went went considerably higher, uh, so it worked. Um, <laughs> no, same but anyway, thing. that's you know that's that's the way I got started reading reading the stuff, and you know, and I once you get started, I don't think you could ever quit. I totally agree with you, and and it's kind of funny story about that is that uh, Martian Chronicles was the very book that my English teacher handed me in junior high and got me involved and. I started writing, so. Well, good that, for you. Good for her. <laughs> it works. It works to get them. You got to get them involved and uh, find what they like to read. And uh, you know, yeah, I read a lot of other stuff, but I never really did it for the pleasure of it until Ray Bradbury. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it it it, it blossomed to me in a and in, in not just from reading, but you know, got me started actually writing. So uh, that's. That's how that goes. That's how it happens. It's great. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was, uh, I started writing in the, like I said, in Europe, probably around 1950 when I was in high school. And I wrote a story for, uh, I sent it to, to uh, Fantasy and Science Fiction. Anthony Boucher was the editor. And um, I didn't realize that what happened, what came back, I don't remember whether I told him I was in high school or what, but. I got an encouraging letter, a personal letter back, telling me that I should continue writing. And I thought, holy catch, you know, you know, he rejected my story, and I, my feelings were hurt, and I, I didn't write again. Uh, you know how? You know, I didn't. I had no idea at the time what a big deal it was to get a personal response from an editor. Uh, a couple of years <laughs> yeah. later, I started college, and I was at LaSalle. LaSalle had a, um, a, a thing they called the Freshman Short Story Contest. And I submitted a story for that. It was a science fiction story, and the story won the contest. And they printed it in uh, the, the the school's literary magazine, Four Quarters. And I, I just felt so good. I thought, well, I'm, I'm on my way this time, baby. And uh, about the same time, I read David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. Yeah. And I loved I loved Copperfield, but the problem was, I thought, holy cats. I'm never going to be able to write like this guy. Never. Mm. So I decided that was it. There was no, I didn't realize I didn't have to write like Charles Dickens. 
But yeah. I decided I wasn't going to write again, and I never wrote another word, I don't think, for 25 years. Wow. I just, I yeah. just gave up. We get that in our mind, though. But, and, you know, uh, I, think one, I think one of the things that, uh, I'll tell you, you know, after a lifetime of watching people, we all tend to underestimate what we can do. Mm-hmm. I think, And I think it's because the authority figures in our lives have a tendency to always be showing us where our shortcomings are. Mm. Teachers will circle all the stuff you do wrong. I did some of that, too, and I, I couldn't think of a way to get around it, but you do it. Uh, my, I remember my father, my father one time, I, I had been in the Navy, and I was a communications officer. And I, I went to a, um, a wedding, and my cousin was getting married, and somebody had given them an FM radio as a wedding gift, and I went over and I was kind of playing with the radio. My father came over and said, stop doing that, you'll break it. And, you know, and he was a good guy, but that's the way yeah. that's the way a lot of parents think. Yeah. And after a while, you know, you start believing this stuff. And if you if if you believe it, once you accept the notion that you're not as bright as 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 you would like to think you are, as other people are, then mm. you, you just shut down. You don't do anything. You don't because doing the stuff that really matters, uh, like trying to write and submit stories to Asimov's. Uh, requires you to, you have to take a chance. You have to kind of stick your neck yeah. out there and take a chance. Yeah, you definitely have to do. Uh, we got somebody waiting on the line for you. <laughs> okay. We got somebody to call. Yay. Hello. I also know this person's from Phoenix. Hello. Hey. Hello, how six- are you? Good, thanks. Uh read about the last five years, read almost all your books. Uh, grew up on Andre Norton. Heinlein, Asimov, just love what you do. So thank you very well, much. Thank you. Joining. It sounds as if we're all on the same track tonight, too. Uh, you know, I love those people also. Yeah, pure enjoyment. Thank you just for for what you do. Um, just picked up the last book, uh, uh, which was probably one of your first books, the Hercules text. Um, noticed it was really hard to find. Wondered if some about some of the publishing issues you have as an author to try to get your books. Keep them in print. Mm, good question. Yeah, the, well, the Hercules text is the one novel I have that's out of print. The rest of them are still all in print. But uh, the Hercules text eventually went. It was it was around for quite a while, uh, and it eventually went under. Um, Ginger Buchanan, who was the editor at uh, Penguin, has has told me that they are talking about bringing it back. So uh, it, it could happen. Um, I'm, I'm sort of hoping it will, but we'll have to wait and see. Good, good. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you uh, week for Saturday and get that book signed by you, if you don't mind. Uh, wonderful. I, 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 if, if all goes as scheduled, I will be there, sir. Okay. Thank you. And thank you for thank the you kind for, comments. Yeah, thank you for taking questions. And thanks for, thanks for calling in. And Anybody else out there? Yeah, somebody else can call in. I, I feel a little bit like uh, Frazier on his television show, you know, where where <laughs> nobody's on the line. Um, <laughs> no, they're there. They just, they just don't want to call. They, they're they listening. And, uh, again, you guys, if you have a chat and you just don't want to call in because it's a it's a long-distance call to you, then just, you know, write in the chat box there, Yeah, you know, ask your question or make your comment, and I'll definitely forward it to Jack here. 
we we would love to have you call in more than anything. So definitely think about that. And again, it's not the call number seven one four two four two five one four five. So you should wind up finding out how many people were actually uh, listening live. Uh, it usually takes about twenty four hours for me to find out. <laughs> but sometimes I can I can see how many people are sitting sitting there listening, um, and they are right in chat, so they can definitely uh, you know jot something down. They want to ask about a specific book. You guys want to find out about a book? Then definitely ask us. Um, that was a great question on uh, you know because uh, issue with. Um, books being out of print and uh, and how authors, especially ones uh, uh, who've been around for a little while, like you have, uh, have books that are that are older that are that these kind of things are happening. Um, it is a shame that that's happening. And uh, Penguin, I know, is is going through changes right now. So I sure hope that doesn't stop anything. Well, so do I, Patty. Uh, no, I've been very fortunate because the uh, the Hercules text, uh, the last time I looked, which is just a couple of months ago, uh, was the only one of my books that went out of print. Well, they notified me when they go out of print, so you know I, I, I'm sure I would know about it if they had a the pad. So they're you know they're still available in paperback. Um, anyway, you you, uh, you were I guess really? wondering about how I got <laughs> finally got started writing. Um, you know, had it been left. Had I been left on my own, I never would have done it because uh, I just really didn't think I was capable. I remember uh, I, I spent a couple of my summers when I was teaching in uh, Mexico, in Veracruz, and I remember driving through Mexico one time, and I picked up uh, a radio program from Texas. Uh, somebody was interviewing Harlan Ellison. Oh, Harlan. And Ellison described his experience when he uh, sold his first story, they said, you know, he said, once I sold that first story, nobody was ever going to stop me. I was on my way. And I remembered that later and thought, boy, it would be nice to sell a first story. But, I, I, yeah, I went, I went a long time after that before I tried. Um, eventually what happened was that I, I got married, and I used to mention the my wife, Maureen, that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd always had to... There were two things I wanted when I was a kid. I wanted to be a science fiction writer, and I wanted to play shortstop for the Phillies. Okay? <laughs> I never got close to the Phillies. But uh, I had mentioned to Maureen that, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd love the idea of writing. I really would have liked... Wanted, uh, you know, it wasn't just a matter of wanting to see my name on a book, either. I think I, I wanted to... I, you know, I, I so much admire guys like Heinlein, what they could do, and I, mm-hmm. I wanted to do some of that too. You know, to, to have a sense that I was contributing. Um, but I just, I, I, you know, nobody likes getting rejected. No, <laughs> that's for sure. I didn't think I could do it. It didn't seem as if there was any point. And finally, Marine talked me into trying. And I wrote a story, that's, and it's really intriguing. I wasn't, aware, I didn't, it didn't strike me at the time. The story I wrote was about a guy who was working at a post office and he's in love with a young woman who also works at the post office but he's too shy to ask her out he's afraid of getting rejected and I, I didn't realize the connection in this for me uh, so he just keeps his mouth shut and one day a letter comes in that had been mailed by Ralph Waldo Emerson 140 years earlier it got lost oh, wow. in the mail and it just arrives and he, you know, he, he sort of looks at the candidate. I got a letter here from Ralph Waldo Emerson, and they look at it. 
And it's got, I used some of the stuff that Emerson actually used in one of his essays, in which Emerson, you know, it's one of the things that I, I, I have never forgotten. Emerson says, if you can believe in yourself, you can do almost anything. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, okay, so I wrote this story, and uh, I sent it off, I sent it to uh, Asimov's, and uh, they passed on it, and I sent it to Analog, passed on it, I sent it to Fantasy and Science Fiction, and I got a letter from the editor saying how they were at the time, they were kind of booked up, but if I wanted to contribute stuff in the future, they'd be interested in looking. And I still didn't realize that that was a clear invitation. So yeah. I gave up, and I, and I, and I, put, the, I put the story in a, in a drawer. Um, oh, yeah, I should mention, too, that uh, Maureen had a friend, and they, we invited the friend over, read the story and tell me what you think. And she looked at it. She made some suggestions, and I made a few changes in the story. That was before we sent it to Fantasy and Science Fiction, and that was where we got the first positive response. Um, but I gave up at that point. I, I couldn't see any point in going any further with it. Uh, Maureen was over in the store one day. She picked up a copy of Twilight Zone magazine, oh, yeah. and she sent it off to Twilight Zone. Uh, they bought it. We got, uh, we were actually we were in, in Georgia where I live now, working at the uh, uh, Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. I was training customs inspectors, and uh, well, it was a TDY, a temporary assignment, a one-year assignment. And when she mailed it off, we were near the end of the assignment. Anyway, we packed up, we went home to Pembina, North Dakota, where I was working at the time. And there was a there was a, an acceptance waiting for us from uh, the uh, Twilight Zone. Yeah. They bought the story. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I, I remembered the Ellis thing. I thought, there'll be no stopping me at this point. And there wasn't. After that, it, was, it amazed me how easy it was to write this stuff once I realized I could do it. Yeah. And I, for, for the people who are listening who have it, you know, my, my experience with people in, who are science, avid science fiction readers is that it seems as if the vast majority of them would like to be writers. Mm-hmm. And what I would like to do is point out to anybody who's listening who wants to write, you know, that, that if you could just, uh, just convince yourself you can do it, you, you probably can. Because most of them do seem to be talented. The ones that, you know, when I get involved with them in workshops and stuff, I think that they're talented people. Uh, but they don't want to take chances. and They don't want to really extend themselves. They kind of play it quietly. And you've got to do more than that. Yeah. Especially now. Uh, I think that uh, it's gotten a lot busier in the, you know, as far as books and stories. Uh, a lot more people writing, I think, now than than uh, ever before because of the self-publishing capability. Uh, but they fail to understand that this is a business and they fail to understand that this is doesn't just... You're not done when you say the end. You, you've got a lot more work to do. That's right. That's absolutely right. <laughs> they say, you know, it took me 12 years to really write... Uh, the, my first book, and it's because I, I sat it down and, and put it away, and it uh, was picked up when I almost died some years ago. So when I almost died, I realized it was about time I did it. 
Yeah, well, that uh, that mortality thing will uh, probably encourage you to do a lot of stuff. Well, see, that's, and I think that's another thing that's important too. If you, you don't want to spend your life thinking about how much you would like to write science fiction or do anything else that's important to you, and get into your later years and, and think, my God, I you know I, I never even tried. Yeah, and that's you just don't want to deal with that. I get a lot of people who tell me that they're in their forties and fifties. Uh, and they're walking up to me, at, you know, uh, when I'm speaking someplace or, or, or teaching them some things, and they say, you know, um, I never thought I could do it, or I, I had my family, and so, you know, everything that I wanted to do fell to the wayside, and I, you know, I had to work, you know. Uh, yeah, you, you can't let the work, and you can't let the other thing get in the way. And I have friends who are probably laughing right now who says, you know, that I need that I need to write more. <laughs> I was 45 when I sold my first story. And, uh, you know, I, I, at that point, I, I, I really had thought that was just never going to happen. But uh, after that, you know, I, by the way, I should mention the same thing happening with the novel. Uh, I, I, I was, Marine had suggested I, I should try a novel, and I thought, wow, I'm not going to be able to sell a novel. And uh, I, I, it was one of the things I didn't try. And I got a call one day uh, when they were doing the uh, Ace Specials. Terry Carr was the editor. And the Ace Specials were a series of novels. They were first novels by writers that Terry Carr liked their, their short fiction. And he thought maybe they could write a decent novel. So uh, he invited me to, to, to write a novel. And I said, oh, okay, Terry, I, I'd be happy to do that. Uh how long are you going to give me? You know, how long do I have? And he said, how long do you need? And I said, well, two years would be good. And he said, how about six months? <laughs> and I thought, well, uh, I'll do what I can. So uh, I, I took the I was I was going to Little League baseball games with my kids, and I was sitting in the stands and writing. I was writing at lunchtime. I was a training officer for the custom service at the time, and I was writing there. Uh, in my in, at lunch and whatnot, riding in the train on the way home. We lived in Chicago at that time. Uh, anyway, um, I finally got the novel finished. I got it finished at a, in six months. It amazed me. I didn't think I could have done it. That was the Hercules text, uh, which I, I always kind of decided in later years that was a bad title. It sounds like a school book. But anyway, I sent it <laughs> off to him, and. Uh, I, 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 what I got back was I got the money. I, you know, the money came back, and uh, I thought, gee, that you know, by advance, and I thought that's great. You know, we bought it, but I didn't hear whether he liked it or not. Oh. So I waited and waited and waited, and finally I called him. I made up an excuse. I don't know what it was. You know, ask how his kids were or something like that. And finally, I asked what he thought of the novel, and he said, "Well, it's not a bomb." <laughs> and that was that was the most encouraging thing that I got from him. Um, and I asked, you know, I remember a couple of years later, the uh, that there was going to be a, a, another printing by another publisher of the Hercules text. A Hercules text and a Talent for War were going to be put into the same book. And uh, I went back to Terry. And I said, you know, what was wrong with the Hercules text? Why was it not a bomb? And he said, well, 
you, you taken the reader through 400 pages. What, what I did with it, the Hercules text is about listening. To, they, they, you, you get a, you get radio signals from from a distant star, mm-hmm. and they said this. Oh, we were able to interpret it, and we got all kinds of scientific information, uh, including how to make bigger bombs if you wanted to do it. You could apply it that way. You could make a black hole. Uh, find stuff that uh, was medically very helpful. Uh, but because it was dangerous, I had the characters keep it quiet and they hide everything. The main character has a son who has diabetes. The cure for diabetes is the information they're getting. But in the end, in the, at the end of the book, they hid everything in an, under an altar stone. So uh, we're getting ready to... So he told me, he said, look, you can't carry the reader through 350 pages and then hide everything under an altar. <laughs> there's got to be, there's got to be, there's got, there's got to be, they've got to get something for what they've been writing. So I rewrite, I started going back and I, I, I started making some changes. I was going to just change the end and I wound up pretty much changing the entire novel. Uh, but uh, the novel is completely different. The, the conclusion now, the president, the uh, the main character that it, who's a bureaucrat, uh, takes on the president of the United States and defies him to stop them from releasing the information. And I was I, just amazing how much better it felt and how much better it read uh, the, the second version. But mm-hmm. I learned a lot from that experience. That was one of my questions for you: was whether or not you ever went back and rewrote something that you wrote earlier. So that answers that question. Anything else you've ever done that you found that, hey, you know, I could probably do that better? Uh, I think that's the only thing that I actually rewrote. You know, I, I've, I've done a few things. I've made minor changes, but that's the only piece of rewriting. Uh, what what has happened is that I've worked on a novel and gotten to about maybe eighty five, ninety thousand 90,000 words. In fact, in one case, even finished the novel. Uh, a Talent for War. I wrote A Talent for War as a war novel. And uh, something something very strange happened at the end of it. And I thought, boy, you know, it, this would work a lot better if it were 200 years later and I had somebody, an historian, try to figure out what happened. And I thought, <laughs> that's the way it should be. So I went back and I rewrote the entire thing from that perspective. Changed everything. <laughs> I, I've told other people before that they can't be afraid to rewrite it. That if they find that their their beginning of their their book is actually three quarters of the way in, then they should pick it up, move it, and do what they have to do. Absolutely, you got to be willing to three. Um, quick quick story. Uh, again, very early in my career, I I wanted to write a story for uh, Chess Life. I was, I, was a, I was an avid chess player, and I wrote a story called The Jersey Rifle. It's about, it was about 5,000 words long. I said it to them, and they replied. They said, we, we like the story, um, but it's too long. They don't, the average reader, most readers for Chess Life, they're not interested in reading fiction. Uh, so we need you to cut it back. Uh, you can either cut it back, or we can have somebody here cut it back, or we can send you the manuscript back. Well, you know, your choice. Well, you know, the, the chess stories are not a big call anywhere. I, if, if Chess Life doesn't buy it, I'm going to have a hard time selling it anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, you know, and I was annoyed because I, at this point I had sold three stories, so I thought I was really good. 
you get this impression of yourself, you know, you got to be careful of. So, okay, send it back, and I'll see what I can do. And uh, I started reading through it, and uh, the first thing I did was to throw out, there were two scenes that were funny, that I thought it was hilarious, but they didn't advance the plot. Uh. So I cut them, got rid of them. Then I started looking for where else I could cut, and I cut every adverb pretty much in the story, and most of the uh. adjectives. And it wound up reading like something that might have been written by Hemingway. Uh, wow. Nouns and verbs carrying the freight and everything else was, was cut. Short sentences, everything to the point. And I sent it back. I said, here, you know, you've ruined it, but here it is. And I said it. I didn't actually say that, but that was what I was thinking. <laughs> uh, but I, I sent it back, and they published it. And uh, years later, it, it has since been republished probably half a dozen times including uh, one in an anthology. Charles Sheffield was involved in it. And Sheffield made a public statement. He said that he called it the best short, best chess story ever written. Uh, I went back when I heard that and looked at it and compared the, that with the original, thinking that if that was good, the original would have been out of this world. Uh, of course, the shorter version was much the better story. And I realized, somewhere in there I realized that... Uh, you, you owe something to an editor. Editors are the editor. You know, it's it's having somebody other than you can't. The writer can't be trusted in judging his own no. story. That's exactly That's true. the reality of it. So, yeah. uh, you know, for, again, for anybody who's listening, uh, the, one of the most critical things you can have is somebody when you write a story, give that story to someone else to read, and encourage them to tell you what they really think. So, which means that when they tell you that something doesn't work or something's dumb or whatever, don't get annoyed. Uh, as a matter of fact, when they tell you something's dumb, take them to lunch. Better yet, marry her. If, it, if it's a woman, marry the woman uh, because she's priceless. And uh, you know that, that really that really helps. It's amazing. But that's that's critical stuff. Yeah, somebody you can actually trust is uh, yes. the one you should marry. Yeah. yeah, Maureen, you know, my wife has been priceless for me. Uh, I, I've often thought if I had married somebody else, I suspect I would never have had a career. That's probably true. She believed in you. Yes, that helped too. That helped too. <laughs> also, she's the one that sent a, your story to Twilight, so there you go. Yeah. Yeah, she definitely was the reason for your uh, expansion in. And actually becoming an author, you know, as you are now. That's awesome. My whole career, Patty, I would, have, I would have done nothing other than train customs inspectors if I had been left to myself. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. No. But it's not, you know, it's not the kind of thing when you, you know, you know get uh, well along that you, that you look back on and say, boy, that was really a great career. It's, you know, <laughs> it's a moneymaker is basically what it would be. But right. But this... Uh, this uh, there, I, I'd loved being a teacher, uh, being an English teacher, but that was a lot. That was a huge amount of work, and even that wasn't quite as satisfying as this. I don't know what it is, but uh, you know, this this is uh, is more satisfying. You know, it is more of a great experience than anything I, I've ever done. Yeah, most uh, authors, especially science fiction authors, uh, I don't think I've known any of them who said that they ever regretted it. Oh yeah, you know I have, I have a friend. Published. I have a friend who uh, Steve Burry, 
who writes uh, adventure fiction, basically. It's historically based, but it's adventure fiction. And uh, New York Times bestseller is doing fine. But I I would not want to write that stuff. You know, it's it's uh, yeah, you can just do so much with science fiction. You know, you you can invent an artificial intelligence, for example, and uh, run him for president. You know, <laughs> he's a George Washington knockoff, and the guy runs for president, and uh, he doesn't win because the other side paints him as a former slave owner. You know, uh, stuff like that. You, you, know, you can do things with this business that you cannot do if all you're doing is writing, like, detective stories or something. Mm. I often say that, that you can hide your own agenda within your writing. Uh, you can you can teach people things that you didn't know, that otherwise they wouldn't listen to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. If you, if you try to, you know, uh, like, for instance, we're talking about gun control, you know, if we're just talking about it and, and, and writing articles on it, then, you know, we'll get lots of opposition. But if you put it within a text of a science fiction book, uh, it, it sinks in a whole different way. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's, well, you, you have to be careful even doing that because it's very easy to become preachy about stuff. Oh, sure. Uh, even, when, even when you're putting it in fiction. Um, but, yeah, if you're careful with it, you can, you know, I, 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 right now, I, I mentioned the book that I'm working on now, which is set 8,000 years in the future. And it's the first time that I've had my characters really spending a, a, a substantial amount of time on Earth. And it's got me thinking about what life on Earth will be like in 8,000 years. Well, I can go in a whole bunch of different directions with it, but it's been a challenge. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is probably a premise of things that, that are to come. We think... Um, I know there's a movie coming up that has something to do with, uh, I think, the afterlife or something like that, after Earth, where it's really long time period between when man's no longer on Earth and what what happens. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I did. I saw that advertised, but I, I don't really know anything about it yet. I thought it was interesting that you know we haven't, and like you, we're talking about eight thousand years. We haven't really taken um, a long, big, giant step forward and, and thought about that, but I really find it fascinating. You're looking at it from a science fiction writer's point of view, and that what would what would a science fiction writer be be writing at that time? Which is, I'm, I'm very, <laughs> I want to read that. Um, you can have that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I've had fun with that. I, I, you know, I'm having fun with this book as I have with, with uh, you know, a lot of them. I think the, the most enjoyable book for me in writing was a book called Time Travelers Never Die. Oh, yes. Uh, and I, I, had, I had a lot of fun with that. You know, I, my characters had a chance. They, they meet Will Shakespeare. They go back to watch uh, the opening night of Hamlet. And uh, Shakespeare played, in, in, in its opening night, Shakespeare played the ghost. And uh, they uh, they wait outside the, outside the Globe Theater that night. They watch for Shakespeare to come out. They go over and shake his hand. Boy, that's really a great play, Will. That's going to go far, baby. That's all right. That's good stuff. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing is just a lot of fun to write. <laughs> How, yeah, you know, I, I, what I, so I thought was, you know, I, I kept thinking of myself, if I have that opportunity to, 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 to talk to Albert Einstein, you know, mm-hmm. and look at all that relativity thing, badge, that's right down the, right down the middle. Um <laughs> 
Well, when you get in town, we'll, we'll definitely have to sit down and talk about uh, you know time travel because it's uh, it's a fascinating subject. And uh, again, there's so many uh, you know so many different way things you can do with it, as as, as you know. Uh, yeah, I should tell you that my deep future <laughs> science fiction writer is uh, one of the novels he's doing is a time travel novel. That's that he's got the title. I, I've got the title. I don't know what it's about. Yeah, we actually do now that I think of it. But the title of the book is Time Travelers Never Wait in Line. <laughs> Time Travelers Never Wait in Line? Yes. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to go far because, uh, you know, even uh, even mundanes can say, oh, yeah, I hate it when I wait in line. Boy, wouldn't it be fun if we had time travel, little time travel gadget we could just, you know, kind of move yeah. forward. That's great. Well, you, but it, you know, it really has been a challenge. You know, I, I find myself, you know, will, will they, assuming that civilization pretty much continues intact, will they still be playing baseball in 8,000 years? Or will that go away somehow? Uh, you know, what the, you know, what do people do for entertainment in the evenings? Yeah. But, yeah. Do, that's, do that's, still, that's, will we still have organized religion? Will we have individual countries? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where where will our country be at that time? It's uh, uh, yeah, it can be sad and it can be uh, you know really inspiring to be able to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's think of these. Do you have any uh, writing habits? That your favorite places that you write? Time of day. Oh. uh well, I, I, I sort of I get you know I, I get up in the morning, have breakfast, and I start writing. And I usually write until five or six o'clock, probably six o'clock more often than not. Uh, but I, I I don't do it in a, on a time basis. What I try to do is set myself a goal every day. Uh, I've discovered that if I just figure, okay, I'm, I'm going to start writing at nine, and I'm going to write until say five o'clock, I spend a lot of time looking out the window. <laughs> but if I say instead, uh, okay, I'm going to do uh, I'm going to do the the the, uh, the the mowing scene today, or I'm going to write 1,200 words or whatever, I can do that. I'm much more effective. I'll, I'll get the 1,200 words, and then I can take the rest of the day off. There you go. So that you that simply works better than, than yeah. anything else I've done. Um, but I I have an office. In fact, I'm sitting in the, I'm sitting in the office now. I've got uh, some of the. Uh, Covers of my my earlier books are on plaques and they're on the walls, uh, including. Well, it's not out here. As a matter of fact, never mind. I, I have a I have a cover or a, a picture here of uh, my 1953 baseball team that I was on the South Philadelphia Quakers. They were all there, and uh, it's funny, but I look very much like my older son Scott. I can't can't tell Scott apart from what I would look like then. And I've also got a framed picture of the officer group from the, the communication school at Newport, Rhode Island, when I went through there. Uh, it's a nice, it's a nice office. It's very pleasant. And oh yeah, I've also got a, I've also got a cover of from Hello Out There, which is the uh, that's the the book that had both the talent for war and the new version of the Hercules text. But the office is very nice. It's very pleasant. I can I can look out. I've got. Lots of bushes and grass and trees and stuff out back, and uh, of course the climate here—it's southern Georgia, 
the climate is very pleasant, sort of like Arizona, except I think you guys are a little hotter out there than we do. Uh, yeah, I think I think you're greener. You got got more greenery there. Yeah, it, it really is. It really is. Um, <laughs> here you painted a picture, and that's exactly what I was looking looking for. I painted a picture of uh, how you work and and what you see when you're looking around. You know, I, I recall um, watching uh, Ray Bradbury's theater and how he had all his little things sitting around and he was talking about where he could find inspiration anywhere, you know, just looking in his office, which he was a major pack rat. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, had I had an opportunity. I met Bradbury on one occasion, which was really nice. Matter of fact, I, I guess I've met most of the, the big science fiction people. I missed Heinlein. I would love to have had an opportunity to talk with Heinlein. Yeah, um, true. But, uh, I heard a story yeah, about him once. Um, I, I met uh, Betty Ballantyne once, a few years ago in 2004. He was she was in Arizona, and she said, you know, she had the uh, great pleasure of being uh, Heinlein's editor. And she said, uh, more than any other author, uh, she, she didn't have to hardly do any editing of his work. But whenever huh. she did, whenever she did have to change something. She had to fight him tooth and nail to get it changed. <laughs> well, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I I learned. Oh, I told the story. I, I learned early on that you know if uh, the, with my editors they want to change something, I I rarely resist. <laughs> Only once or twice. Uh, be, mostly because I've always been wrong. You know, I go back and look at it, and I can see that I'm the one that's generally that they they've got a good point, and there we go. Yeah, he he didn't think that he uh, he needed anything changed. So she always thought she said it didn't have to change much. But when I did, I had to fight him. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a great story to know about him. I can imagine based on you know his case, stubborn. <laughs> uh, Patty, you're breaking up. I'm sorry, I missed what you just said. Oh, I just said that uh, he must be pretty stubborn. I figured he'd probably be pretty stubborn. Oh yeah, I suppose. Um, but he, you know, he would have been fun. I, I, you know, the first time that I uh, was even aware there were science fiction conventions, I had come out of the Navy, and I was trying to decide what I was going to do with myself. And while I was thinking about it, it was the fall, it was the fall of 1962, and I got a job driving a taxi cab while I was trying to decide what I was going to do with my life. And I remember taking some people from the airport in Philadelphia to one of the hotels downtown where they were having PhilCon. And uh, they, I, I realized on the way down that they were all, they were talking about Isaac Asimov. And I couldn't resist that. They're, oh, yeah, it's a convention. I said, yeah, Asimov's going to be there. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I let them off. And I thought, what am I doing in a taxi cab when Isaac Asimov is in the hotel? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So that was that was my that was my introduction to science fiction conventions, and I, I've always liked them since. Wow, yeah, and that's what I like about science fiction conventions as well is meeting the authors, uh, because I think that if if I like the author, I more than likely would love his writing, his or her writing, and so I, I thought I found that to be the case. If I meet them, and it's just a whole new dimension to their writing. Yeah. 
Well, you know, you also see really wild stuff. I know I was at uh, in Atlanta, uh, I guess it was last year, for um, Dragon Con. Now, William Shatner was there. Mm-hmm. I didn't really get a chance to talk to him. He was always surrounded by people trying to get his autograph. Um, but, uh, but I came out of one of the hotels. I came out of the hotel I was staying in. And uh, standing immediately outside the hotel was Wonder Woman. And <laughs> she really looked like Wonder Woman. I mean, this, this, this woman was not somebody you're going to make trouble for. Absolutely gorgeous. The costume fit perfectly. And I remember standing there thinking, boy, if I'm ever going to get jumped by bad guys, this is the time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's just so much stuff that happens at these cons that, uh, you know, it's so much fun. And, and you know, we laughed at on television. And there's a, there's a character on Frasier who was the uh, uh, Star Trek Star Trek type, the Trekkie. Uh, I I don't remember what his name what the name of the character is, but they you know they always kind of suggest that he's an idiot, and of course by by comparison all all these crazy things that go on at the cons, but uh, it's it's you know I can't think of a better way to spend a weekend. No, I I, I agree. Because I, I I probably need to get out from uh, behind the administrative part and actually enjoy it again. So. <laughs> We were just talking about that. How, how many more years am I going to, uh, you know, work it and actually just go on the other side and enjoy it? Are, are you the person who runs the con, Patty? I am the co-chair for this one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, so yeah, the buck stops here. Yeah, Joe Fillinger, who who uh, has been running uh, Erie Con, tells me that he's uh, he's stepping down. He said that. He never gets to really enjoy the convention anymore. He's always running around solving problems and doing stuff. And he wants to just go to it and sit in on the panels and, you know, enjoy exactly. himself. And yeah, last he, year last year I did programming, and I and I uh, here I put myself on a couple of panels. And I wound up not being able to do them because there was, I was, again, uh, solving problems. So it's, that was not fun to me because I don't like being stuck in a room. <laughs> yeah, no, I could understand it. <laughs> so, but the good thing about it is, is that you know I get to meet the authors, I get to meet the artists, and the and the media people. So you know that's the fun part, is that uh, you you get to know them a little better than other uh, you know, membership does because uh, you're you know talking, conversing to them, trying to make things work and. Uh, something doesn't work, they'll sit down and talk to you about it. And so you want to get to know them better than if you simply were, you know, a member. Uh, you only see them, there, there's there, there's a, um, a separation, if you want to say, that you'll be up there on the panels and people are sitting in, in the audience. So there's a separation there. Yeah, it sure is. Um <laughs> Yeah, you you, uh, you had mentioned at one point about uh, my family's reaction to uh, my writing, and I should I should mention that my mother my my mother was was largely responsible for my own interest in books. She was she was the one who used to take me down to the five and ten, 
and always bought me the, you know, I'd, I'd pick out the books I wanted to read, and she would get them for me, and she encouraged me to read, uh, for which I am grateful. When I uh, when I hit about 13, 12, whatever it was, and I started bringing home startling stories and thrilling wonder, you know, when they had these gorgeous babes on the cover that were getting dragged <laughs> off by, you know, half-dressed, getting dragged off by a robot. And I, I remember, you know, I'm thinking, what is the robot going to do with that woman? Um <laughs> But I, I know that the, the, these half-naked women on the covers made her, and, and you know, when the illustrations inside made her uncomfortable. But she, uh, God bless her, she always looked the other way and pretend she didn't see any of it. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I've always been grateful for that. She, uh, in later years, when I started writing novels, she wanted me to write westerns or historical <laughs> novels. She could not yeah. understand why I would want to write science fiction. For her, science fiction was always kind of, you know, the, the goofy stuff. Um, but uh, yeah. there, there you are. Yeah, and it, you had to write what's true to you, you know. Um, I write about India, and I, my mother wants me to write about Ireland because I'm Irish. And I, I, I said, well, that's great, except I'm not interested in Ireland. <laughs> Yeah, so you you gotta you gotta have a passion for what you're doing, or it's not gonna be any good. You don't have a chance. Exactly. Um, there's a there was a, um, a current writer here who wrote historical novels that I was on a panel with her one time, and uh, she was she was a bigger name. Uh, I don't I don't want to mention the name particularly, but she was a much a very big name. She was again she was a New York Times bestseller. And during the course of the panel, she said, you know, you, you seem like a, a rather intelligent young man. Why don't you write something serious? And she, her specialty was writing Civil wow. War novels. And, you know, I, I remember at the time I just said, well, you know, I, I write what I like. You know, and When I thought about it, I, I realized what I should have said was, you know, you, you're stuck writing all these novels about uh, uh, a world full of racism. And the people who, if they get wounded, they have to remove their arm and stuff like that. I can I can write about a better world. And, uh, there you know, go. I'm not stuck writing the same Civil War book over and over. <laughs> that's awesome, and and that's that is kind of the point that you you write what you uh, what you want to write. So, and you know, I can. That's great. I, I grew up in a, a basically a racist climate. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. The, the street I lived in in South Philadelphia, we didn't trust anybody who was different from us. Uh, mm-hmm. Jews, black people, um, Presbyterians. <laughs> you know, it, it, it didn't take a whole lot before we we were suspicious. <laughs> and one of the things that science fiction did for me was get me away from that stupidity. Uh, I remember reading. I don't. I, 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 I don't remember now what it was. I remember reading a, 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 one of these double novel books, both novels by the same writer. And, uh, yeah, I can tell you what it was. As a matter of fact, it was the novel. The, the novel was the one, Flight of the Space Beagle. Oh, okay. It was the novel that apparently inspired uh, the uh, bunch of movies that they made with uh, those creatures that... Um, oh, I can't remember now. My, my, I've gotten old enough now that my memory is gone. But anyway, the, the movie was The Boys of the Space Beagle, and it, it had a, uh, a creature in it that was pretty, really, really mad nasty. 
And I can remember telling my father that uh, once you've encountered this thing, the fact that somebody happens to be Jewish seems kind of irrelevant, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, there's a lot worse things, or as I put it, there's always a bigger fish. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's another aspect aspect of that too. Uh, I, you know, I was a comic book fan early on, and I especially liked Superman. Uh, and there was a, a Superman. This, there was a Superman radio show that ran from about 1940 until about 1950, and I was I was an avid fan for years. And uh, Superman, they I, I think a lot of this had to do with the Second World War. That we were, I, I often thought that the Civil Rights era was largely a product of what we saw in Germany. And uh, Superman began doing a series of stories in which Superman was a Superman was uh, ran into the Ku Klux Klan. Now they didn't use the Klan, they had a different group, but it was obviously Ku Klux Klan that they were writing about. So much so that they were that the people running the show were getting warnings from the Klan uh, about knock it off. They didn't do it, they stayed with it. They had Superman coming out on the uh, on the show later on, saying, "You know, boys and girls, you know, I'm Superman, and I want to tell you we're all in it together." Uh, they explained why skin color was irrelevant; that nobody, you know, nobody had any control over that. They had they did a series of stories on something like I, I don't remember what they called it. I think Unity House, I think it was, where they had boys from all religions and uh, you know, boys and girls from all religions and uh, from all races. Even even Japanese Americans, you know, at a time when Japanese weren't very popular, yeah. it was it was a remarkable thing that they did, and I you know it, I I know it influenced me and it influenced a lot of the kids I grew up with, uh, and yeah. uh, you know we got in trouble with some of the older people who thought that we should be opposed to uh, people who were different than we were. Uh, it's uh, there's that line out of South Pacific about you have to be taught to hate. You can't. You don't get it on your own. People. That's why. I suppose that's why somebody said that uh, the human race advances one funeral at a time. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Huh. Okay. That's 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 saying a lot there, Jack. <laughs> I hope I didn't say too much, Patty. <laughs> no. No. I just. You know. I think it's great that you bring that. And then you know we're talking about. Um, influences of comic books on the younger generation, and I think that's you know those, I have heard about those things happening uh, where they came out and you know they could have gotten in a lot of trouble, but they did it anyway. Uh, yeah. To yeah. to so that way the message uh, you know for that generation would come out and they would you know start to maybe change a little bit. Well, you know, another aspect to it, too, is, is kind of interesting. Um, and I don't know whether it's coincidence or not. But, you know, of all the kids I grew up with, we were, as I remember, the best I can remember, that we were all comic book fans. And I don't remember, you know, and I went through all through school and high school with those guys, and even through college with a few of them. I don't remember anybody ever getting in trouble with the police. Hmm. Never. Um uh, and I, I kind of suspect it's because we realize that, you know, uh, the criminal stuff was stuff that Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent wouldn't do. That was not the way we were, that we behaved. Right. I don't right. I don't remember that, you know, the uh, 
the church particularly being involved in any of that, you know, and, and affecting the way we behaved, other than, you know, the, there were a few things about getting to church periodically and, uh, you know, keep your hands off girls, you know, stuff like that. Right. right. But uh, as far as, um, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's funny, you know, that, that the love your neighbor stuff, which is, it seems to me to be the heart of the New Testament, I got from comics. <laughs> So if that makes any sense. Yeah, well, yeah, it does. It does. As I said, that, you know, science, that... And from the science fiction stories, too, by the way. Yeah. yeah they, uh, well, you know, uh, the good the good guys always seem to understand the end of, hey, you know, we're, all, we're all humanoid, so to speak, and yeah. uh, we should all try to tolerate each other. And that's really been kind of overall theme to many of the you know Buck Rogers and 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 Flash Gordon, you know, um, try to tolerate each other. Obviously, you're going to have a nemesis, and that's just somebody who just not going to like you no matter what you do. And, and sometimes the nemesis is, a, is an ideology. Um, you know, you were talking about the kind of effect you can have more or less indirectly in, in where you, you don't actually have to preach. You just put stuff in the story. One of the stories that uh, really affected me, what I think that it's a Ray Bradbury story, and I think the title of the story was There Will Come Soft Rains. The only oh, character yeah. in the story is in the intelligent house. Okay. And they're yeah. all dead. And everybody's been killed by an atomic war, and the house is wondering where everybody is. And that, you know, that, that, that kind of affected my attitude about war. And I got me thinking about, uh, you know. I, I wish we but, wish we had. I wish we had more time. <laughs> oh, we're out of time. We, yeah, we're about we're about one minute in, and and then they're going to cut me off. So okay, uh, well, yeah. let me let me say thank you very much, then, Patty, for having me on, <laughs> and uh, thank you to all all good people who are patient enough to stay with us. And we'll definitely uh, see you in a week, and we'll talk more about things that we didn't get to talk about. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Thanks so much, thanks. Patty. Thank you. Right. Bye. Bye. That was that was Jack, and this is Patty Holstrand. This is KWAD Radio, and we've got 30 seconds here before they they turn us off. And uh, again, I got uh, didn't think we needed two hours. It wound up, you know, that would have been nice if we did have two hours. So uh, we own it an hour and a half, and and we had a lot of the good, great things we talked about here. Um, I am going to be on again tomorrow with Ray with uh, Raymond Swanlin, who is our artist guest of honor, artist guest of honor at Leprechaun Thirty Nine. So until then, I'll see you guys. This is KWAD Radio. Patty Holstrand signing off. <laughs>